Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Concussion Talk Podcast, presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. To organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck to improve communication and optimize care, visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. I'm very excited to be doing episode 161-61 with Lauren Zacks. And But first, because I haven't talked to her in over a year now, um, but first, I'd like to encourage everybody to check out on social media, so at Concussion Talk on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you can search me on Nick Mercer on LinkedIn. Um, what else? There's... Yeah, I think the T Public, so you go to T Public and search the concussion talk. You'll find my t shirts and hoodies and other clothes that they sell, and uh, that's at T Public. So there's that, and there's a good link on the bottom of this description of this episode. So thank you, and please subscribe, rate, and view of this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Which is, I don't plug my YouTube channel enough, but I have a YouTube channel as well. This is Concussion Talk Podcast is on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, so without further ado, I guess I get to Lauren, who's going to talk about the dysfunction disorder, disorder, sorry, of the, of the autonomic nervous system, which is known as dysautonomia, which she has experience with, and she has done a lot of research. And uh, she has presented this research numerous times in this podcast, but it feels such an important topic, and Lauren is, knows so much about it that I think this speech is a great, is a great kind of primer today, but issue to be aware of for people who have suffered a brain injury. So, please welcome Lauren Zayas. Okay, so I'm on now with Lauren Zayas, who is, geez, my, I'm going to say, my old, my old friend Lauren Zayas. It gets old. She's not. Well, she's younger. She, she's younger than me, so she's not the old friend. <laughs> I'm the old friend, and I'm not really that old either. But anyway, but uh, I haven't talked to her, and we we're saying about a year now. But uh, we're back now, and she's uh, we're back talking about dysautonomia, and uh, that's as you I've seen a lot of people post about dysautonomia in the on the 
Twitter and Instagram and stuff and all the concussion stuff, people are getting more but this only this I know me is getting more more renowned. So so I think I think it's a great time for the Lauren Days because first of all, I just Aside for a dysfunction of the autonomous nervous system, autonomous, autonomic nervous system, what is dysautonomia? Yeah, so like you said, a couple of years ago, we were considered yeah. out in the in the trenches somewhere by ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah. That we were talking about dysautonomia after concussion, and now, mostly thanks to COVID and everybody uh, realizing <laughs> how prevalent yeah. it is, especially with our long haulers, uh, people are starting to pay attention, which is really exciting. <laughs> Um, so dysautonomia is an umbrella term that just means a disorder of your autonomic nervous system. So your autonomic nervous system controls your fight or flight and your rest and digest or your sympathetic and parasympathetic. And if you think about that, it's like if you get nervous or scared, your heart starts to race, you start to get a little sweaty, right? And you get prepared to fight or flee yeah. and then rest and digest. So you eat a big meal, you feel a little groggy, you sit down, your blood flow goes to your core. And then that's when all your organs start to work to digest your food. So um, basically those two systems that are supposed to keep us just alive and basic level of functioning, get out of whack. Um, and the software running those programs stops working properly. So that's essentially dysautonomia. Jeez, Paul, that's a... Uh... And uh, she also mentioned that Lauren has a cold now. We're flu. I don't know. If, I don't know if, we haven't diagnosed it yet, but uh, <laughs> we will. Wait, she's uh, she's blaming her son, but uh, <laughs> having a one-year-old uh, means I'm perpetually been yeah. sick for the last year. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you, you, uh, you asked you. I saw you actually the first time I hunted you was the American Day BTA. Thing about uh, those short pockets they did with you calling yourself they, they call you the queen, the queen of concussions. So it was called, or they call me the queen of, queen of concussions. So you've had a bunch and uh, and you have experienced this on yourself. So I guess you just just talk about that, like your concussions, your concussions, and and this on me, or however you want to discuss it. Yeah. So, um, I, my traumatic brain injury was my ninth concussion and that was kind of the bottom fell out of the bag concussion versus like some people have a more significant TBI because of one impact. Mine was a lot of impacts building up on top of each other. And then, um, I, for the most part was better. I was probably functioning at 75%, which given where I started from, I was very happy with, but I just wasn't able to get healthy. I wasn't able to exercise. And after going to doctors for a decade, I had kind of given up and I just became more and more deconditioned. And unfortunately, that's the worst thing they could do for dysautonomia. So it just keeps getting worse and worse over time. Um, we started seeing autonomic disorders in our clinic because of the uh, level of injury that we treat in the concussion mm -hmm. world. Um, you can have someone who has a concussion, right? They don't have a bleed or a skull fracture who has significant impairment where it's hard for them to read. It's hard for them to go to work. They might end up on disability, things like that. So, um, sometimes that term concussion is a little bit misleading because they are brain injuries. Um, yeah. and so we started seeing more of these autonomic disorders, particularly in our chronic injuries are people who were ill for more than three months and in that process and learning more so that I could help my patients better, that's how I discovered that my mystery illness I had had for 10 years was postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, um, which is um, one of the types of dysautonomia. I was going to say, when we're doing the podcast about that, because yeah. you've done yeah. the podcast, I was trying to figure out, like, what is the point? Like, don't do this to me, Nick. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what it stands for. It was so, so early on when we did that yeah, podcast. Totally we were on. like, just learning. We were so yeah. green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but so life really opened up after getting my diagnosis. And like most of my patients with autonomic disorders, whether it's from concussion, long COVID, Epstein-Barr, dysautonomia can come from any variety of prolonged bed rest or inflammatory responses. Um, most of us had signs of it ahead of time, right? Because they believe it's an autoimmune disease. So it'll be the people who say things like, well, I've always had a really high heart rate, but I was able to exercise, or it always took me five to seven minutes to warm up the first mile of my run. I was always kind of dragging and then it would kick in, right? These things that we just take as throwaway comments that we think are normal because we've only ever experienced our own personal experience right and and they're not normal um but you just wouldn't know and and it was so misdiagnosed for so long that even if you mentioned that to a doctor they wouldn't have had anything probably of value to give you as an answer um so you have a triggering event like most autoimmune disorders and then the disease really expresses itself and that's when people's level of function changes so that's what we're seeing particularly again with the concussion the long covid the post-vaccine illnesses things like that it's not that the vaccine or concussion or COVID is giving you the illness. It's that it's bringing to surface something that was already there underneath. Um, And that's why it is important to, to take a full history of a patient because you're able to get a much better profile. Most of us have allergies. We have other autoimmune conditions. Um, We might have connective tissue disorders like hypermobility where our joints are really loosey goosey. There's all other kinds of things that come along with it. That's a physio term, is it? I've heard that uh, physios use that a bunch. So mostly I some familiar with that one. But uh, the good news is if you have a if you have H E D S, once you get closer to 40 like me, your joints become less loosey goosey. So uh, yes. when you're over <laughs> you just 40, have to make it through. I'm over 40, so you know, so that's uh my my joints are not as important. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, but you. Um, I was reading the uh, John Hopkins. Like, sorry, just before we before the expert came in, I was reading the Google expert, which was John Hopkins, and telling me that saying that uh, a lot of people like dysautonomia can be spread can 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 be symptoms are you know chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic fatigue, and so and uh, getting better and uh, Ehlers. You probably know it, but Ehlers Danlos syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so I thought it was like I was like, don't mention concussion, but concussion is not a not a symptom. It's a triggering event, really. Is that exactly? Yeah. So it's a triggering event, and then you're treating the dysautonomia. So the dysautonomia treatment, in and of itself, is its own its own thing, right? So it's not like I'm oh, treating yeah. the concussion when yeah. I treat the person for their dysautonomia. It doesn't really matter what their triggering event was. Maybe they had monovirus as a teenager and it's, you know, that we know that those viruses live inside of our body. And then you have a stressful event that triggers the virus to, to elicit these symptoms. So whether it was a head injury or it was a post-viral infection, we're treating the dysautonomia essentially the same way based on the person sitting in front of us. And, and what's also really important right now previously one failure point we had in the medical community was if you didn't get diagnosed with OH orthostatic hypotension, where your blood pressure drops or POTS, where your heart rate goes really high, you were just sent home. So there was no treatment for you. And what we're now realizing is that orthostatic intolerance, which is people who don't meet those criteria, but they still have symptoms when they're upright or with activity, they're actually 85% of the patients. So we've been sending home 85% of people saying, you don't have POTS or OH, there's yeah. no treatment for you. And and luckily the community is shifting. So we're, we're giving those people the space that they need. 
And what's really interesting in the clinic is the diagnosis itself doesn't seem to be that big of a predictor, perhaps if it's a much more chronically ill person, but the people who are within a year, I've got patients who have orthostatic intolerance that are by far more impaired than my patients with POTS. And, mm. and vice versa. So you really want to be treating the person sitting in front of you versus what their diagnosis is. Or because, standing in front of you. Or, sta or standing in front of you, as <laughs> it may be. But um, <laughs> good point. But it might be that a person with POTS can actually start on a bike, right? Or they might be able to start walking, yeah. whereas a person with orthostatic intolerance, who you would think would be less impaired, might actually have to start on their back, eliminating all gravity while they're exercising. So awesome. you really want to be looking at upright tolerance. What's their symptom burden? What are they able to accomplish in their day? And then modify the exercise or activity program to meet their needs and then bring them all the way through to the end. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. You did last. This is the last question before I ask you about your your research, which I think is the, one of the main focus of this. Hopefully, will be the main focus of the podcast. But uh, so, is dysomnia? Is it? It's diagnosed. You di doctor diagnoses it, or or how is it diagnosed? Or is it yeah, so a diagnosable disorder? It depends on your clinic. Um, the way that our clinic runs, because of the time it takes for the test and the time it takes for the education, we actually run the orthostatic vital testing, meaning you lie down and then you stand up and we take your um, vital signs, your blood pressure and your heart rate, and we collect okay. your symptoms for 10 minutes in standing. And then we send that report to the physician and the physician confirms it. Other okay. places in the country, the testing is run through an autonomic lab. It oh, yeah. used to be that the testing had to be performed on a tilt table, but there's been oh, changes yeah. now in the community where they want us to do more community-based testing because mm -hmm. the average autonomic lab has a six to 12 month wait in some parts of the United States, it's a two year wait. Oh, and so we yeah. really want to be getting people diagnosed and into yeah. treatment faster. Um, I don't know where the pendulum's going to settle out on that, but ideally if people are testing in the community, they're doing you know, the, the rigid protocol and they're making sure that they're labeling things based on the cutoff scores. Because um, you, you kind of feel like you can diagnose just on, you know, well, not you personally, because you obviously you've had it for, but I mean, yeah. you're, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah you can diagnose it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, now we'll move on to your, your research. So the last we were talking before was last year, yeah, Jan Tucker and you, DPT, Jan Tucker, doctor, is it Dr. Jan Tucker? And you, and we're talking about it, we're on talking about because you're going to do HRM or uh, Chicago, was it? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. We went to ACRM, uh, American College of Rehab Medicine in Chicago. Was That was November. And then we went to the American right. Physical Therapy Association's combined sections meeting in February. Right. So, so which, which, because I know that I got a bit of your, I got a bit of your talk to you in June. And last year, and that was we was waiting for it, November. So, well, I guess you were you see. I think you're you're finished as your your research then, but you presenting it. So, what did you present at ACRM and CSM? So, what did you present present about dysomnia? Those things. What do you think is the most important thing you presented about uh obviously about exercise, exercise tolerance or intolerance or however you want to say it. But uh, yeah, I guess you can just kind of. Put back your uh, your your cut your finished recovery hat and uh, lead us in this journey here. <laughs> yeah. So at, at those two conferences, we did an introduction 
to how to identify dysautonomia and then a start to the non-pharmacological management, the no drug approach, Um, because we're PTs, right? So it's not like we're prescribing beta blockers or blood pressure medicine. So, so we were staying in our lane. Um, And so the big part right now is just improving awareness, right? Because people are seeing these patients, particularly people who treat more chronic concussion, uh, people with protracted recovery, and then people who are treating post-viral illnesses are seeing these people in their clinic and they and they don't quite know what it is. We, they know that there's a constellation or a collection of symptoms that don't quite sound right. And it's a, a lot of different body parts. So they'll have GI problems or stomach problems. They'll have heart problems. They'll have activity intolerance, headaches, dizziness. They'll have weird swelling in their limbs, numbness and tingling that moves around their body, right? So the provider knows that there's something quite not right, but, but you have to know you have to know what the diagnosis is before you can identify it in your patients. Right. And so what's been really exciting is the attendance for these presentations. Like people are really eager to know and to help their patients as much as they can. So the, the presentations were fairly similar at the two conferences. Um, ACRM is for uh, different allied health professionals. So it was more about the education of the patient. And then the APTA presentation was more about the exercise and um, the non-pharma management and how to diagnose because it was for PTs. So it just kind of depends on um, the people who are sitting in the crowd, right? You want to you yeah. present to them. but So, so you presented to the uh, ACRM was totally different or just, just different, different but more broad, broader focus or... Yeah, more of a broader focus, because we didn't do as much with the exercise portion, um, just because it could have been that it was a physician in the crowd or an OT, or it could have been anybody versus at the PT conference, like that's our bread and butter is the exercise portion. Well, then let's let's, let's get into that then. So did you pull up some studies? Is it TSN? Pull up some studies. Well, not not some studies, your study, your research. (laughs) And uh, so what, so what about... uh, what about exercise intolerance and uh, and because uh, you so you you seem to you have seen your posting on Instagram, your runs your runs you're saying your heart rate is better now and it goes up and down and it's going better getting getting steadier now and is that, is that just you're running a lot more or is it that you're getting uh, is it also triggering not triggering but kind of understanding your dysautonomia more. Yeah, that's a lot of questions all in one. Um, (laughs) For mine, it's it's different because I had a lot of setbacks along my process with different illnesses. And then I had the baby. And so like it hasn't been necessarily like a normal trajectory for what my patients might experience. How was so had the baby affect your dysonomia symptoms in your exercising post Oh, yeah, that was really rough. So in, what they don't tell you is that in the first trimester, the reason that you're so sick is because you have to double your blood volume and your blood vessels have to dilate. They have to get bigger to accommodate that blood volume, right? Yeah, yeah. And so people with POTS have poor blood volume and yeah. don't do well with vasodilation. So I had to disclose at work they at like week blood? four. I was like, I, I just barely had a positive test and I had to disclose it at work because I was so sick. Everybody could faint? tell there was something wrong. Did I faint? No, yeah. but I like my resting heart rate sitting was like over a hundred uh for a couple weeks. Like I was kind of gray mm-hmm. and like sweating and like breathing with my neck muscles, right? Like it was and not great. Back, there was like two. Yeah, it was not it was not ideal for two over one. 
for a couple months and then uh, I just made sure to stay as active as I could safely right um all the way through to the end because that's the big thing for people you know the early stages of dysautonomia are hard in that it's really hard for us to exercise but exercise is what we need symptom guided exercise right we don't want to be crashing for two or three days um so it might be that we start like I started with five minutes intervals on a recumbent bike which is an emotional burden because before I got sick, I ran a marathon in four hours and 11 minutes. Oh, and nice. then I, not, not, not to brag or anything, no one <laughs> runs a marathon and doesn't talk about it. Right. But <laughs> so, but I went from that to 10 years later to be able to start exercising five minutes on a recumbent bike. And it would make me dizzy and feel as tired as if I'd gone for a run. And so like, that's a heavy emotional and mental burden. Um, and and that's a big part of the recovery process and the and the lift that I have to do as a provider is to help motivate people to to stay the course, because now I'm able to jog for the first time in over a decade, which is really exciting. I wouldn't say I'm gonna run a marathon. I'm thinking about maybe a 5K this fall. Yeah. <laughs> but um... but it's something that I didn't even think yeah. was gonna be an opportunity for me. And what's really important in the brain injury world is that we know from neurology that exercise, moderate intensity exercise has a neural protective benefit long-term in our lives, right? So that helps with the prevention of Parkinson's, MS, dementia, all kinds of things. Um, and so with people with brain injuries, we're more susceptible to neurodegenerative diseases later in life, right? And right. so so my question, not, not, to, not to dumb it down too much, but my question is, are we so much more susceptible because most of us have ac- exercise intolerance? Yeah. who have symptoms long-term, right? So if we can get people back exercising with within that symptom threshold, can we start to reverse some of that literature long-term about what our long-term effects are going to be? I hope the answer is yes. Being a person who's had 13 head injuries, yeah. uh, I'm hopeful that finally being able to exercise is going to help me later on in life, right? So, so it's twofold. It's like increasing people's capacity now, but then what are our opportunities going to be later if we can start to turn these people around and get them back functioning? Maybe not the way they used to function, right? Like I said, like I'm never going to run a marathon again. Also, just because it was among the most miserable experiences. Yeah, say, but, but, why? But if I can exercise at moderate intensity for about 150 minutes a week, I yeah. know that that's going to help protect me as I get older um, from, from some of these debilitating diseases, which is really nice. Because I remember last one, and you and Jen were talking about the, uh, you had like, you know, I don't know how many people, but on like the uh, treadmill, and you had some people starting off and they're standing up, they're like in the 90, like 1998, like they're like, her is at 98, and like, and then like you they get up to, Take like two seconds. The treadmill was like two level two. It'd be pooped. Bill over one eighty. Yeah. yeah. So, so so our research that we did, um, we were the first that we know of to introduce signs of dysautonomia on the Buffalo concussion treadmill test. Right. So we that. took the treadmill test that's been well published and validated yeah. from Letty's group in Buffalo, and we were using it in our in our clinic, which is all chronic injuries. Um, so totally different population because their research is the youth sports, predominantly male athletes. Right. And so what we found was just doing the protocol, the way it's written in the research, we were not getting the same results as what the research very, very concretely said we should be getting. And we were like, well, what is happening here? Um, and we were using for this study, uh, peripheral monitors, meaning like a, a finger monitor, 
because in the literature it says that you can do that right or you can wear wearables like your apple yeah. watches and things like that okay and what happens in these in this subset of patients who have these signs of dysautonomia they don't get enough blood flow to their hand their 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 perfusion their blood flow coming in and out of their arms and legs isn't as good as a, a neurotypical person and so we get these really weird readings. Like it'll say someone's oxygen is 65%. Well, of course it's not. They're walking on a treadmill and they're talking to me. So it's yeah. highly unlikely that it's 65%. And so because of this research, we ended up moving to um, central monitors or chest strap monitors, okay. which are actually a lot more affordable than a wearable device, really? right? So a polar- And more, and more accurate too. And they're way more accurate because yeah. the thing that they don't tell you about the wearables- um, First of all, they're optical sensors, right? That go on your wrist. That's that little green light you see at the bottom of your watch. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so that's measuring the blood flow through the vessels. And they're not validated with activity. They're only validated at rest, which they don't tell you when they charge you 350 bucks for them. Right? <laughs> American. So I'm going to wake up dead in my bed one day. But, um, 350 American. Yeah, 350 stuff. American. I don't know what that is in Canadian. Oh, it's a lot and, more. Uh, <laughs> hundred bucks. But, you know, like a Polar or a Garmin, which are validated against a five lead EKG are like 80 bucks um, yeah. and they're waterproof and they're measuring, they're, they're using what's called your V1 and your V2. So they're actually measuring two leads on a five lead EKG. So you're, you're measuring the electricity of your heart. So they're by far more accurate. And that's actually what was a turning point for us in our research was being able to truly measure what we think we're measuring and then make a very accurate prescription and then for the most part, it's an affordable device. Obviously, there are some people who just can't have access, which is unfortunate. We can yeah. use rating of perceived exertion for that. Um, but we can make the exercise as tailorable and measurable as possible. And that seems to be what makes people move through the protocol faster. So mm -hmm. the research that we did was um, we had one where we just introduced the signs. And then we had one that we published um, where we looked at their retest. So they took a test and then they took another test after going through this progressive protocol, and we were able to show significant um, signs of change in their response to exercise, which was really exciting. But it's the infant, like we need people with big grant funded studies, right? Like, I, yeah. I mean, I'm a researcher by twilight. So like, it's not going to be me that that does this work. Uh, I don't think uh, unless someone wants to give me a lab or grant, something. Yeah, let's, let's, let's <laughs> online podcast grant, the bank grant application here. So give Lauren some money to do research on and Lauren and, and, and Jenna. Or yeah. yeah, Jenna, absolutely. Jenna's got, she's, she's in it now. She can't leave. Okay. So Lauren and Jenna, give Lauren and Jenna some money to do this on my research. Please. I hooked my talents into Jenna. So she's, <laughs> she's in it for the long haul. <laughs> All right. Well, um, she's, uh, she's going to do her little plea too. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll get to some funds. I don't know if we'll <laughs> week is going to give my some funds first, or it's not first as well. Um, But uh, so once, once you have these, this data about the, uh, the dysonomia, their heart, their their exertion, and their oxygen levels, and uh, their heart rate. What what do you as physios do for that? Like, what do you do for say a someone has not not necessarily pots or uh, or exercise and dawn telling exercise dawns, but like, yeah, I actually let's start with exercise dawns. So, what do you do with someone has has that level of 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 dysonomia? 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, almost everyone with dysautonomia is going to have exertional intolerance because okay. their symptoms are worse when they're upright. And exertion might mean standing in the kitchen cooking dinner, right? Yeah. Exertion might mean going for a trail run for an hour and then having a headache afterwards. Like it can mean anything. Um, and there's some disagreement about the term exercise in general in the community because exercise right. has such yeah. a big connotation of what that means. But to yeah. me, if you're on your back with your feet on the wall for five minute intervals, that and that is moderate intensity, you that's exercise. You could call yeah. it activity, but to me it's exercise because um, you're you're actively working towards some type of fitness, right? And so you you look at where the person is and what their symptoms are um, and how long they can be standing. And then I've had the pleasure of being part of a work group between Intermountain and the University of Utah. Um, and so we actually have released a protocol, the first new protocol in a long time for dysautonomia called the Utah ADAPT protocol. And it's a physical therapy rehab. Um, it's just it's just the exercise portion. It is not a full <laughs> preferred practice pattern, but um, it is it's a way to give a structural framework that's tailorable to each patient versus having a set treatment for everybody, no matter where they start and what they yeah. look like. So instead, it has functional measures, and then based on those outcomes, they enter a protocol that has um, five stages. And you enter the protocol wherever it's appropriate for you, and you exit the protocol wherever it's appropriate for you. So some of my patients don't have any interest in getting to 80% of their age expected max for 20 minutes, right? Which is from concussion literature. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
some, I, you know, some of my patients might want to be able to walk a mile a day, or they yeah. might want to be able to stand in the kitchen instead of sitting so they can cook dinner for their family. And that, and that might be all they're looking for. Um, so you really, there's no point in, there's no point in pushing somebody in therapy to a point that they're never going to maintain. That's a waste of everybody's time and energy and money. Right. Mm-hmm. And so why would I take somebody by, by far past what they're going to do after they're done with me? I'll just put you in the maintenance stage earlier and have you ride a bike for 20 minutes every other day for the rest of your life kind of thing. And that's, what's really cool is once you're through the protocol, I mean, it's miserable to start, right? Having a chronic illness is expensive and isolating and hard, but once you're through all of that and you have the right treatment, when you're in the maintenance stage, the long-term maintenance is at least 20 minutes of moderate intensity exercise for the rest of your life, whatever that means to you. So that's pretty cool. Like it's not drugs. It's not, you know, yeah. some people are going to need meds, but like for the most part, our goal is to wean you off of those things and have your nervous system reprogram itself. That's kind of cool. Like is, there's yeah. other illnesses where you need insulin for the rest of your, you know, like things yeah. like that, but it's just yeah. exercise. So, so this, 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 uh, totally focused on exercise here as your research, but, uh, so you, you, you described this, these five stages you're saying. So generally what, uh, what are, it's sort of, it's sort of standard, but what, what, what do they, what do they call, what do you call them basically? Yeah. So the the first stage is called recumbent exercise. So you, or horizontal plane exercise. So if you think about your hemodynamics or the way your blood moves in your body, if you're standing upright against gravity, you're having to work the whole time to push that third of your blood volume back up into your core because Mm -hmm. gravity pulls your blood volume down into your legs. So a normal, healthy person is, has tone in their vessels and they're pushing all that blood volume back up. For patients who have upright intolerance or dysautonomia or exertional intolerance, they struggle just at baseline to push that blood volume back up. And that's why we put compression on them because the compression does what their muscles and blood vessels should be doing. Okay. And then we add salt because the salt pulls the fluids back into your blood vessels. That's why for a healthy person. I noticed that in literature, so too, the same high salt diet was a treatment. I was like, how's that treatment? That sounds like a bad news, but... Yeah, I can have between three and 10 grams of salt a day because I have pots, right? And so that would be like eight servings of ramen noodles if I had 10 grams. Yeah, Yeah. it's a lot of salt. But it's it's fascinating because if my husband drank the salty water that I drink, he would be perpetually thirsty and he would be bloated and swollen, right? And for me, drinking that salt makes me not feel thirsty and it makes my tissues feel better. So we just need like a little extra hug for our nervous system at baseline. Um, and then so that, so when you start in the horizontal plane, there's no gravity. So you're not having to work to just exercise, right? So that's why you start there. And that could be a pool. Um, it could be that you're laying on your back, sliding your feet on the wall or sliding your feet on the ground. Then you go to recumbent exercise on like a recumbent bike where you're sitting back in those okay. nice seats. Yeah. Or maybe a rower where you've got your arms and legs going, but you're seated and you're leaning back a little bit. Doesn't matter that a rower, you're pumping pumping with the legs. You're pumping with your legs. Yep, exactly. And you get a little bit of an arm workout too. Uh, Does that matter to the pots? To the, not the pots, but the, uh, yeah, dysonomy. Does that matter that you're actually moving your legs? Like, yeah. Yeah. 
You want to be moving your legs because you want to be, you want to start to build that tone so that you can push that blood volume back up. So, so leg strengthening, lower abdominal strengthening is really important. Um, There's a thing called pelvic congestion syndrome. So they're now saying for the most part, that lower abdominal compression with binders or compression shorts or things like that is more important than the lower legs. But then there's some of us like me where my lower legs swell quite a bit and they turn purple. It's called acrocinosis. So I have to wear the socks because yeah. that's where my blood pools, right? So it just kind of depends on the person and, and what they need. Um, and so then you go to the upright bike. So that's your first transition against gravity. So you're sitting okay. and then you go to walking. And the goal for our, our ideal goal, and it may not be a reality for everybody, but our ideal goal for most people is that we get them to the walking stage because life is for the most part is upright. So you're walking to the grocery store, you're walking to class, you're leaving your car and going into your office building, whatever it is that you're doing, there's walking involved. So the goal is that we can get you to where you can exercise upright for 20 minutes every other day. And whether it stops there or whether you go to an hour of exercise, it just depends on the person and their goals. But, but trying to get you as upright as possible is the bulk of my job. And then I guess the fifth stage is just is just higher, higher to, to, to do it hurry. So the running. fifth stage is, is interval training. Um, and so when they do interval training, what's really interesting is the interval day is actually the easier day oh, because yeah. they're alternating an interval day with a steady state day. A steady state day just means you do the same exercise for 20 minutes, right? Your heart rate stays in the same zone for 20 minutes oh, straight. And so if your heart rate goal for your high interval and your heart rate goal for your 20 minute day are the same, then your interval day is the easier day, right? So it's kind of weird because when you're talking to a patient about their intervals, they're like, oh yes, I'm going to do intervals. And you're like, actually, that's going to be your easier day of the week because it's it's a 20 beat per minute difference, right? So you might be at 120 beats per minute on your high interval and 100 beats per minute on your low interval. Um, but it, that's the really exciting stage because that's where you're working on your cardiovascular reserve and you're working on your heart rate flexibility. Like that's where you really start to get into the cool stuff. Um, and the research is really good from cardiac rehab on the importance of interval training. It's just, you have to be able to interval to something. So you can't do intervals earlier in the protocol because most patients are going to start. It's fascinating. No matter their age, they seem to start around 90 to 95 beats per minute, which is just wild. And I would love to know more about why that is. Um, and so you're not intervaling at 90 to 95 beats per minute. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) you have to wait until you're at least 115, 120, because you need 20 beats per minute difference between the high number and the low number. Um, or you'll be, you know, just laying there, not moving at all and then exercising and then not moving at all. Right. (laughs) So do you find uh, my last question about your dishonor research? Because you've been on for done for a while now, I guess. But um, yeah. Um, so do you do you see do people drop out of your clinic? Not drop out of your clinic, being like drop out of your program protocol. Uh, for, for you, do you do? Do they seem to drop out in like a like three or four, or do they? You say because you mentioned people at five, like indigency or interval, so they must see must have some patients at five. But uh, do yes. they tend to see? You can see people drop out at earlier stages. You do. Like if somebody has another inflammatory episode, or maybe it's not the right time in their life to be really consistent, or maybe they have other medical challenges going on. And so we pause on therapy and they focus on other things. Those are typically the people, um, obviously cost sometimes with how expensive healthcare is in, in the U S that can be a big part of why people drop out. But for the most part, um, 
what I try to do is get them to intervals. And then I'll do one visit after intervals where we'll talk about maintenance. Because at that point, for most patients, you're really dealing with strength and conditioning as much or more than you're dealing with their dysautonomia. If you're going to hit, and it depends on how long you've been sick, right? But if you've been sick for two years and walking for five minutes is hard before we get started, after mm. two, three months, four months of treatment, it's not like you've built three years of capacity in those four months, right? Yeah. And so you're going to hit a point where you're going to, the conversation that usually ends our course of care is, um, hey, I'm doing really well. My symptoms feel better. I can function more. I I can, I have more capacity at the same symptoms. Those are, those are both positive signs. It's just two different types of people. Some people don't want to exacerbate their symptoms. Some people want as much capacity as possible. And so their symptoms kind of plateau, right? Um, and then they'll say things like, I just can't maintain for 20. I'm not ready to increase. My heart rate control looks good. They're hitting all their measures, but they don't think they can do the next five beats per minute for 20 minutes straight because of exertion. It's too much work, right? Oh, yeah. And so if that's the case, then I'm really done. Like you're in the maintenance phase. I want you to keep going at whatever feels good. Don't give yourself, you know, a quad tendon tear, like, you know, you know, make good choices, do your strengthening two to three times a week, but you don't really need me anymore. You know how to read your graphs, you know how to manage your symptoms, you know how to pace yourself. And now it's just building capacity over the next couple of months, maybe a year, depending on how long you've been sick. Um, and so when I no longer serve a purpose, I just kind of like fade to black. I'm just, uh, bye. It's like cons <laughs> consistency. So it's key, right? It's all that. Yeah. yeah and, you, just, uh, you have to be consistent or you're going to yeah. come back and hang out with me again. And so my, my goal for that last visit is to go through the long-term maintenance Prep them for the regressions that are going to happen. You're going to get sick. You're going to have something happen. You'll have a death in the family and you miss your exercise for a week, whatever it is. How are you going to self-manage so you don't have to come back and hang out with me? And so you don't end up on that slippery slope of deconditioning again, which will make your dysautonomia worse. And I then as soon as we have that people conversation. Hang with you all the time. People <laughs> won't hang with you more than you think you are. They don't. I promise you, you don't. My jokes get very old very quickly. You know, six, seven visits, that's all I'm really good for. After that, you don't need me anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it might be, it might be that I'm only seeing a patient once a month, or I might I might be seeing a patient every other week. I'm it just kind of depends on how fast they're making progress between visits. The most unpredictable part of the protocol is truly that first stage. If you are starting at five minute intervals or 10 minute interval, if you're not even able to go for 20 minutes, you're in what's called the preconditioning stage, which is great, but you might be there for a week and you might be there for three months. So that's the most unpredictable. It's like, how long is it going to take you to be able to do 20 minutes in one session without needing a break? Once you can do that, we start to really pick up speed. So that's what I always prep patients with in the first visit is like, it's this preconditioning. It's building you to 20 minutes without a break, without your symptoms increasing more than three points. Once we're able to do that, I'll be able to predict how long you're going to take. It's just that first stage. And a lot of that is the emotional or mental burden, right? Like we yeah. talked about at the beginning of this is hard. And why is this so hard? And the emotional yeah. piece of- yeah. I mean, it's hard. Again, it's hard and expensive to be sick. And so yeah. there, there is a lot of heavy lifting on the front end. And then when people are feeling healthy and they're, and they're doing better, there's not very much lifting at all. That's when they get discharged from therapy and they manage themselves. We should, we should, we could do like a whole podcast series on just on dysonomia. But, uh, I, I'm on my podcast is called concussion talks. So I gotta <laughs> be a bit broader in this still, 
narrowish topic. Um, but well, uh, let's yeah. circle back to that real quick. So yes. if you have a head injury, right, yes. you probably and you are struggling for a prolonged period of time, not yeah. that first two, three weeks where yeah. people will spontaneously get better. Yeah. But you probably will have multiple domains involved. So the other big thing, and we have this written in our protocol, and we really want people to be thinking about this is you should also be looking at their vestibulocular motor systems. You should be looking at their neck. You should be looking at their motor function, right? All the other domains as well. Um, Cause exertional autonomic is just one of the APTA's domains. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're treating the whole person. So maybe there's someone on your team who's really good at dysautonomia. And then there's somebody else on your team that's really good with their vision of vestibular therapy. You want to make sure people are getting serial exams or um, exams over time to make sure you pick up on all of their driving factors. Um, So that's just one little plug for the brain injury community is that we are multifaceted people. We got to figure out how to get you visiting once a year with you is not enough. So we got to figure out. Once a year year with me, most people would think is enough. Oh, I mean, but it's, it's incredible. I'm on... We're uh, what we're like what like five thousand miles away, <laughs> so you know, so I can take a bit more probably than most people. But uh, or maybe more than five thousand miles. Probably five. Anyway, I don't know miles. I don't know miles. Away. I'll just you know, see American talking American now. Miles and uh, pound, not pound, not pounds, not pounds, pounds, like. But we're, we're six thousand football fields away. Yes, no. exactly. Yes, exactly. Maybe more than that, the six thousand. Full fields would be like thousand, so that's a hundred yards. So it's just, that's like the kind of feet. How many feet are in a mile? I got. I don't know. How many yards? It's above my paying grade. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's leave it at that then. So, uh, uh, what's what's next for for Lauren and for Phoenix and customer recovery? If that's like if you're still doing that. I am still doing Phoenix. Um, what's next is just continuing to build up some research and, you know, wherever we can or sparking other people who have labs and are excited about this stuff to do the research so that we can get patients the best care and do some validation studies on these protocols that are coming out. Um, so just keep chugging away, treating my patients over at the hospital and educating providers and doing whatever I can to, to play a role. And also, as I was listening, uh, if you give uh, Janet and Lauren some money, they can do some real good research <laughs> with uh, Buffalo travel tests and like a bunch of a whole bunch of <laughs> subjects in their study. Like, yeah, you, know, you can do a thousand person study. A thousand beautiful. person study that'd well, be a yeah. long study. <laughs> well, if they have enough money, though, then you know you can take the time. Um, but so depends on how much. That'd be that'd be good that other people would be very solid. So that would be a very solid. That'd be that would be a long study, but that would be a very solid. Rather take you away from your retrieving the patients that you love. I know. So yeah, (laughs) I know on all phases love that. So maybe not. uh, But anyway, get get them get them some some grant money and uh, there's some more research. And uh, yes, and uh, and anybody else wants to hear about. Lauren and Dishonomy, you can check out the phoenixconcussion.com. Is there much Dishonomy research? I haven't checked that. I'm saying tomorrow. Now I got to update. I'm going to put some more information about Dishonomy on the website. Um, I've just been slow to to do that. The, having this okay. one-year-old has really yeah, taken yeah. some wind out of my Char- sails. Charlie's Char- Char- giving me like a cold, and now we're taking Dishonomy research. We got to 
And they have Charlie Charlie next time we'll have to talk to him. Ask him why he's doing this. What's the deal? What's up? What's going on, Charlie? What's you don't like the thumb? What's your problem? But, uh, <laughs> so uh so yeah, so uh well, thanks for having me on here today. It was oh, nice well, to be back. It's been, I know it's been based on the after the way you giant again this year. And uh, yeah, but for now, uh, for now, everyone, thank you for coming for listening. And uh, and thank you, Lone Blue, we'll be back, we'll be back this year. We'll find a way. If not, if not, maybe with Charlie and Scott. <laughs> and uh, that'd be quite the podcast. Yeah, that'd be very fun. There you go. These guys back, I want beer. Charlie Big. Give me a cold and stuff and <laughs> interrupting research. Um, but we, uh, yeah, but I think it'll be fun. Um, uh, but uh, for now, so thank you very much, everybody. And uh, we will, I'll see you again soon. And uh, thank you, Lauren. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.